0: All great tales um, have like a big reveal, right? They have they have this thing that you, you have this aha moment in the story, whether it's like Luke being Darth Vader's son or that Frodo can't destroy the ring and that Gollum is somehow essential to its destruction or that Harry is the seventh Horcrux, right? You have this moment where you're like, oh my gosh, that's unbelievable, Um But what is it, right? What is it about that experience? What is it about us experiences this aha moment, this big reveal that resonates so deeply with the human heart? Why does that work, right? Why do all great tales work that way? And the answer that God's word gives us is that we're born into a mystery, Uh, that God isn't a problem to be solved, that he's actually a mystery to be discovered. right? He's in a mystery to be evoked. And in him we live and move and have our being. And the mystery is essentially this. How can we have hearts that yearn for eternity that live in bodies subject to decay? How can we have hearts that yearn for perfect love that continuously produce pain in the lives of those that we care for? How can We have uh, this God who we intuit that we want to right every wrong, right? We want God to correct all the brokenness and fallenness in the world. And in fact, we get very angry at him that he's not doing that. The existence of evil is something we use as an argument against the existence of God because we say things like, well, if God were really there, he wouldn't let this happen. And the big mystery is how can God be holy and good, and true, and at the same time, gracious and loving. And that's a mystery that has been going on for ages. In fact, it began when God revealed himself to Moses. And it carried on through Jesus' day so that Paul, when he was writing to the Roman church, could say this as the benediction of the letter that he wrote to the Roman church in Romans 16. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey Him. The only wise God be glory, excuse me, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So what was it, right? What was the mystery that Jesus solved? What, what, what was it about God that uh, Jesus made clear that had been unclear up until then? And the answer that the Bible gives is that when God first introduced himself to Moses, when Moses asked God to reveal his glory to him, it created this kind of conundrum for humans. And it was this question, how can God be like this? And this is how God introduced himself to Moses in Exodus 34. He passed in front of Moses proclaiming the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And so this began this mystery, right? Which is, how can God be this way? How can God be a compassionate and gracious God abounding in love and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin for thousands while also not leaving the guilty unpunished? How can he be just and a justifier of sinners? How is that even possible? And in our passage today, God finally reveals the answer to that age-old question. And it begins with Jesus issuing a warning on the day of his death. In Luke 23, beginning in verse 26, we read, As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. A large number of of people followed him, including women who mourned and wailed for him. And Jesus turned and said to them, Daughters of Jerusalem... Do not weep for me, weep for yourselves and for your wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will say to this mountain, fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. For if men do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? What Jesus is explaining here is that God is going to punish the people of Jerusalem and the people of Israel for what they are doing to Him. And that that punishment will fall on them and their children, that there are consequences to the decision to crucify the sinless Son of God. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. 37 years to the date from which Jesus issued this warning, During Passover in 70 A.D., the Roman army came and surrounded Jerusalem, trapping 1.1 million people inside the walls and starving them to death. And then went in, destroyed the walls around Jerusalem, and tore down the temple, and it has never been rebuilt. Only its foundation remains to this day. So that's exactly what occurred. And here's the thing that's disturbing about that. God's commitment to punishing sins doesn't merely apply to those who crucified Christ. God is going to judge every sin. Now, on some level, that's good news because it means that people like Putin, who use their power to sin with impunity, are going to be held accountable, right? Intuitively, we know they shouldn't be able to get away with it. And the Word of God says that they're not. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. And Galatians 6, 7, and 8 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. But that creates a problem for us, doesn't it? Because it means that we're gonna have to give an account and that we are going to reap destruction from the ways in which we have sown to our sinful nature, which all of us have, right? Some of us, like me, sin more than you, maybe, right? When people hurt me, I'm like, oh, you hurt me. I'm gonna hurt you back. Plus about 5% interest on that pain so that you don't do that again, right? That's kind of what I like to charge a little pain interest. When you sting me, I'm gonna sting you back, right? But God's like, hey, there's gonna be accounting for that, Mark. Like that, I'm, I'm keeping a record of uh, what you've done, and there's gonna be an accounting. So that creates a problem for us, which makes the next section wonderful because it reveals God's gracious and loving heart. Look at what Jesus does in verse 32 two other men, both criminals, were led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, there they crucified him along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're punished justly for we're getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Here we see just how far God is willing to go to forgive us when we sin against him. Think about this for a minute. The only time in human history when God made himself vulnerable to us by incarnating, by taking on flesh, what did we do to him? Well, we betrayed him for refusing to make us rich and politically powerful. We abandoned him for forcing us to face our fears. We accused him of blasphemy for telling us the truth. We falsely convicted him of leading an insurrection for refusing to use his power to dominate others. We denied that we knew him in order to avoid shame We hurled insults at Him for refusing to save us from the consequences of our sins. We oppressed Him racially. We stole from Him. We publicly humiliated Him. And then we tortured Him to death. And what did He do when we were doing that? He prayed for us. Look again at verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they're doing. And then he made an outrageous promise. Jesus answered the criminal, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. But how can Jesus do that? Right? How can God be both the one who punishes every single sin that will ever be committed and forgive this man of all of his sins? The answer to that mystery occurs in verse 40 and 41. The other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you're under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. And here is the secret to the ages, the biggest reveal of all the reveals. The holy God who punishes every single sin is also the compassionate and gracious God who forgives every single sin of anyone who asks Him to by voluntarily taking the punishment due their sins on Himself. This is what made Jesus the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the world. As we've seen, this is the whole point of the Exodus story. It was the beginning of redemptive history where God was explaining through the blood of sheep and bulls, through the high priesthood of Moses and Aaron, through the plagues, what the plan was, how he was going to solve the problem that our sin had introduced into the world. See, it turns out that the second criminal was correct. Jesus was getting what he deserved, not just temporally, but eternally. Look at verse 44. It was now about the sixth hour. Darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had said this, he breathed his last. You see, the sixth hour was the sixth hour from the sunrise, which meant it was roughly noon. It was in the middle of the day. And when darkness occurred in the middle of the day, every Jewish person knew what that meant. It was a judgment, right? They had seen that darkness. It was one of the plagues. It was a darkness that could be felt, and it was a darkness that the prophet Amos had predicted would return at a particular moment in time. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, the prophet Amos wrote this, in Amos 8, 7-10. through The Lord has sworn by the pride of Jacob, I will never forget anything they have done. Will not the land tremble for this and all who live in it mourn? The whole land will rise like the Nile. It will be stirred up and then sink like the river of Egypt. In that day, declares the sovereign Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. I will turn your religious feast into mourning and all your singing into weeping I will make all of you wear sackcloth and shave your heads. I will make that time like morning for an only son, and the end of it like a bitter day. You see, God always had this in mind. The way that he was going to be a gracious and compassionate God, forgiving the sins of thousands was he on the cross was going to send his one and only son to be uncovered and laid bare before our judge so that he could receive in himself the deeds of darkness and their consequences so that we could receive from him what his life deserved. He would take what we deserve so that he could give us what he deserved. See, Jesus was a righteous man. The centurion was right when he said in verse 47, surely this was a righteous man. In fact, the scriptures make it clear that he was the only righteous human being to ever live. He was the only person who ever loved perfectly from the minute he was conceived until the minute he died. But that made it possible for him to be the spotless lamb of God who could take away our sins, the one who is going to sacrifice himself for us. The Apostle John explains it this way in 1 John 2, 1 and 2. He says, My dear children, I write this so that you'll not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Which is why Jesus' crucifixion took place during Passover. It was the whole point. The whole story was leading to this moment. And it's what it made it possible for Jesus to forgive this criminal. See, this criminal knew, I've got no shot at paradise. I am getting what my sins deserve. And so what he asked Jesus was if Jesus could take just a memory of him to paradise. He's like, I know I can't get there, but I would just like for you to remember me when you get there. I know you're going there. I know I'm not going there. Would you remember me when you get there? And Jesus says, I'll do you one better than that. I will take you there with me today. I will make it possible for you to be with me in paradise today. He said in verse 43, I tell you the truth Today you will be with me in paradise. And in order to achieve that, Jesus took that man's place in what the Bible calls the outer darkness. He went to hell for that man. He descended into hell for that man on that cross and paid the penalty due his sins with his death so that he could call that man forth from the grave and bring him in to the place that he had prepared for him In his father's house. This is how God is able to punish every single sin you've ever committed and still forgive you. So now you've seen it, right? The big reveal, the mystery hidden for long ages past has been revealed to you. The question is, what are you going to do with this realization? Now, there are two different types of witnesses that day. There were people who already knew Jesus and there were people who didn't. Verse 48, when all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. But all those who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance watching these things. What took place on the cross that day makes it possible for people who don't know God to become people who are in a personal relationship with the living God who loves us and gave himself for us. How do we know that? Well, we know it because of the first verse of this passage, verse 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Now, here's the question I want you to think about. How do we know that guy's name? Right. Serene is in modern-day Lebanon. Okay? It's 684 miles from Jerusalem. This guy was not a disciple. He had never seen Jesus at all before this moment. He had saved up all of his money and he had taken his family on the trip of a lifetime. They had traveled nearly 700 miles to make it to Jerusalem on the high holy day of Passover. And this would be like their moment when you're walking into Disney World from the parking lot, right? They they have entered Jerusalem and they're like, God, this is incredible. This is amazing. Look at the temple. Look at all these people. This is so exciting when suddenly Simon is racially profiled by Roman MPs who grab him and make him carry the bloody cross of a criminal who is bleeding after being whipped and scourged and wearing a crown of thorns on his head, which would make Simon ceremonially unclean. He would no longer, because he came into contact with blood, be able to enter the temple. This would then become the most shameful moment of his entire life. In front of his own children, he was a victim... Of oppression. And he was publicly humiliated to participate in the Roman shameful crucifixion of a man he knew nothing about. So again, I ask you, how do we know his name? And not only his name. We know the names of his sons. Mark chapter 15, verse 21 tells the story this way. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon... The father of Alexander and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. Now think about this for a second. The Gospel of Mark is the first of all the Gospels written. It's published roughly in the mid-60s A.D., before Jerusalem fell, but when Nero was in office and he had started killing Christians. And this is going to end, this is the last chapter, this is almost the last sentence, It's it's near the very end of the book of Mark. And somehow, not only Simon, but Simon's sons want their name attached to this story. And they want it published in the Roman world. They're like, oh yeah, 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 don't leave out dad, right? Dad, Simon from Serene." That's That's like signing your legal name to a document, just so you know exactly who we're talking about. This is the Simon we're talking about. Simon from Serene, father of Alexander and Rufus. Why would he do that? The only logical explanation is that he stuck around when he was ceremonially unclean with the disciples, probably in the upper room, and he was among the group of people who became eyewitnesses to the resurrection. Which is why Rufus and Simon's wife show up at the end of the book of Romans. When Paul is ending the book of Romans in Romans 16, 13, he says... Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. You see, it turns out that when Paul is describing this group of people in First Corinthians fifteen, he says, This, for what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, although some have fallen asleep. Simon, Rufus, Alexander, and their mom were among those who saw the living Jesus. Because it's the only way that the most shameful thing that ever happened in Simon's life that that story becomes the proudest moment of his life. If Jesus had stayed in the grave, Simon's name never would have been attached to this. He would have made sure that that story never saw the light of day. It would have been the most humiliating event in his life, and instead, it's the greatest event in his life. Because it was the moment when he got to give his living Lord a break from carrying a cross that he was going to get on to die in Simon's place to cleanse Simon and his children from all their sins and give them a hope and a future in paradise with him. So, maybe you're like Simon today. Maybe you've ended up here randomly finding yourself seeing what happened to Jesus on the cross for the very first time. Maybe, like the centurion, for the first time in your life, you realize that Jesus of Nazareth was the righteous one come to earth for the sins of the world. Well, this is no accident. Like Paul explained to Simon's son, Rufus, this is happening to you because you are chosen in the Lord. He's giving you eyes to see, and it's a gift an opportunity to escape the sins that so easily entangle us, to remove the judgment hanging over us for the things that we've done and the things that we have left undone, and to remove the barriers separating us from God so that we can be reconciled to Him and filled with His Spirit. All we have to do is what the second criminal did, and that is admit that Jesus is getting the punishment our sins deserve on the cross. That he, in fact, is substituting himself for us. And that he is our only hope. For Simon and his sons, this meant that what could have been the most shameful day of their lives became their most glorious day. A day that they were willing to die for in order to have their names attached to this as their public testimony. A day Simon's family would never forget. The day that Simon saw how God can forgive his sins and deliver his children from their consequences. And that day can be today for you. The day when God has revealed himself to you as he did to Moses as a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And this is how he does it. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? Since you're under the same sentence. We're punished justly for getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you came to seek and to save the lost, that you left the 99 to look for the one, and that by the power of your blood and your resurrection, you have shattered the barrier separating us from God. We pray now that by your grace, you would grant us the humility necessary to confess that you on the cross are getting what our sins deserve, that we might, by the power of the resurrection, get what your life deserves. And we ask this in your name. Amen.